Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take Hey everyone, it's Matthew Zachary, and welcome back to Out of Patience. What was once a show is now a party right here on the same feed you already subscribed to. Why? Because I'm now the ringleader of a whole new cast of senior correspondents with segments featuring opinion pieces, rants, and the latest news about the shit show that is our fabulous healthcare system. The only thing that hasn't changed is our mission to make healthcare suck less for everyone. Let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Celine Karnazd. She's the founder and CEO of Massive Bio, which is as impressive as it sounds, solving for one of the most important scathing holes in healthcare, clinical trial enrollment. She's a no BS businesswoman, a hardcore engineer geek, and she defines herself appropriately so as a non-status quo businesswoman. Her mission in life is to make sure that every cancer patient gets access to a clinical trial, when in fact the reality is that 80% of patients who qualify for any trial never get there. That's not okay. All that and more on the show today. Let's get started. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you, too. It's been a minute, you and your five engineer degrees. Listeners, uh, she has five. You have to list them now. What are your degrees? Well, two bachelors, yeah. uh, two masters, and one PhD. The last one was a PhD from engineering. Right. What was your first, like, do you have like a BA in something simple? Yeah, it's a, a, a one Bachelor of Science in Mechanical, one Bachelor of Science in Industrial, one, I would say, um, Master's in Mechanical, one Master's in Industrial, and final, I would say, PhD in the in, uh, Mechanical one. All right, I'll see myself out now. Right. Very nice to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> My undergraduate degree was supposed to be biomedical engineering. Oh, wow. For a period of six months in high school, I got enamored with prosthetics. Oh, wow. Early prosthetics. I had a friend who lost a limb. Uh-huh. Like this is cool. I mean, before today's like quote cool prosthetics, like not like iRobot prosthetics, but like right. I like this. I can do math and physics, and I'm ashamed to admit I was good at chemistry at the same time. Uh-huh. Then six months later, I'm majoring in music. Oh wow! So chagrin all around. Wow. At the family. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's it's wonderful. No, I had a lot of different plans, but <laughs> I think I ended up being an engineer for sure. Did you 
want to be this? Were people in your family this yeah, already? My father is an engineer. Right. So it just definitely came from, I would say, from the DNA. And also in Turkey, you know, I, I was born and raised in Turkey, you know, like uh, we don't have the son. I was the only child, you know, okay. as, a, as a girl, you need to almost like continue the family. <laughs> I yes. have that flight. The patriarchy disciple. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And my father wanted to give the baton in engineering to, of course, uh, his daughter. And I picked up that. And he is not necessarily uber happy because he said, I told you just one. I didn't tell you just five. Oh, oh, I think you overdid it. So he's very happy on that. You overexceeded his expectations. <laughs> yes, I overexceeded very his expectations. How old were you when you came over? I came in here in at 21 years old. I came to the United States in 1999. So I was born in 1978, uh, 21 years old. And from that, uh, I've been in the United States going into the education, uh, going into my professional business career, everything combined. And how quickly did it take you to realize that everything here is fucked up? Well, um, in I, general, but in healthcare, perhaps. Well, I think healthcare, I, I realized very quickly, but, but I think in general, uh, you know, I'm very grateful what the country has provided to me, you know, wonderful education, wonderful opportunities. At the end of the day, I'm a kind of young immigrant woman with, that came in here with literally kind of in my pocket, a couple of dollars and then went through a kind of scholarship in my PhD. After that, got a great job, had to kind of take care of myself going through all that. I, I was like incredibly pleased and I'm grateful for everything that the country has provided. But, you know, when I come to the healthcare, uh, things are a little bit interesting because I would never anticipated in this level of a vibrant country, this level of inefficiency that you're going to experience in the healthcare you can experience an inefficiency if you do not necessarily spend uh, the, the right amount of money. But in here, we are spending trillions of dollars to healthcare, and it's still inefficient. So that is the part that is really, really making me upset that, you know, if you're going to invest, we have to invest in a way that there is going to be efficiency that's been unlocked from that inefficiency. Otherwise, what are we doing in here? Going all these schools, going all these things, there has to be an outcome for this. As long as inefficiencies are profitable, I suppose nothing will change, correct? I completely agree to you on that part. I think this is also the general, I think, challenge of everything has been run by a private sector. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at some of the other countries in Europe and in some other locations, since there's also more like socialized healthcare, you know, we of course, kind of uh, have our pros and cons in different systems, but that social healthcare system brings a little bit of an efficiency and standardization, and the profit limits are controlled in that sense, so that we don't have this level of disperse and inefficient healthcare system that is driven by still inefficiency at this point in time. So I kind of like got sucked into the cancer advocate space in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. I wandered the earth alone. I had no idea what was going on. And I, I, I found Livestrong. And then boom, I'm, I'm in the beltway. I'm doing stuff. And then stupid cancer starts. So when you first discovered the, I, I, I mean, the, the dystopic inefficiencies of oncology healthcare, where at the point in like cancer awareness were you? Was it like post-breast cancer, pre, I don't know, emerging med, Livestrong? Where were you? Yeah, so everything has started when my uncle has been diagnosed with cancer. 
So when he was diagnosed with cancer, that was the first time that happened in the family. And I actually lost my aunt to cancer six months ago as well. This is not just kind of a business for me, for sure. That's That's also a very, very personal passion for me. But prior to my uncle's, uh, I would say, prostate cancer diagnosis, we were hearing about all the cancer stories and all that stuff, but we were not immersed into it. And also in terms of my family, we were a little bit of educated family. We had a little bit of kind of way in order to be able to get our way around. But even in that sense, I see incredible amount of disconnect, although there's a military of people that's trying to help the uncle side. It was incredibly challenging to figure out what do we need to do next? And there is differences in opinion and there's differences in what do we need to do in terms of logistics. And we got completely confused from the place where we started after all this support mechanism. And that was the first aha moment for me that this is not going right. And then after I started to do my own due diligence, which take about more six months, I started to understand the bottlenecks in the clinical trial access. And then, of course, you know, this is a journey. OK, so every day we are learning about the another aspects of the healthcare good or bad, and we are really trying to pinpoint those bottlenecks that maybe people wanted to overlook and doesn't pay attention, but those details are actually the ones that's changing the patient enrollment value chain, and that's providing the large amount of access to cancer patients. Was there any one point in this process where you said, that's something I can fix? Well, I wouldn't say there's only one point, but I would say Every day almost I wake up, there's another point that is making me to convince. I also look at this thing in a little bit of a emotional side as well. It's not just about recognizing the challenges. You know, we have a call center and there are a lot of patients that's calling to us every single day, talking to our patient advocates. And when you listen those kind of conversations and when you basically understand the amount of impact that you make to this person's life, you know, it may be one day, one kind of engagement, one marriage one, uh, I would say, graduation that they see. And, and when you kind of see that impact, I think that's actually more important than me other than the issues, because if I only focus on the issues, I cannot breathe. I can tell you, you know, I have to just shut down everything and go and go into an island and kind of close myself from the world. But I am trying to focus on What are we bringing to the table in terms of the cancer patient? In addition to that, when we have conversations in the strategic account meetings with the pharmaceutical company, how we are trying to impact their drug development life cycle, I'm actually focusing on that, then coming back to the issues and say, okay, you know, these are the the ways how we are influencing the outcome. And from that outcome, these are the ton of issues that we need to I would say, resolve and go deeper. And that's how we are, uh, I would say, reorganizing or organizing our team to work uh, around those issues. But this is not something that can be, I can tell you, resolved by one company, one individual, one of everything. This needs to be a collaborative effort. Well, what we have in common besides many, many specific things is that I'm on one end of the spectrum. I'm there for patients, protecting them, giving them communities, providing these things, working with the nonprofits. And the nonprofit sector really is kind of the glue on one side of the spectrum. In between that side of the bell curve, in the middle is all the data and the analytics and the connections and the human beings. And on the last mile of the, of the other part is actually getting the shit you need. And our dear friend Craig Lipset, hello, Craig. I know he listens. 
you know, we've been talking about just for the listener's sake, clinical trials sounds like you're a lab rat. It's the worst. I know it's in, in the annals. It's in the codes. It's the worst title ever. It was designed by people that don't speak person. That's a separate podcast. Right. But the data that I remember from 20 years ago is not dissimilar from the data that you just talked about before the show, which is that out of every 100 patients that actually qualifies for a legitimate clinical trial for a drug that would potentially save their life, for every 100, only 25 at best. get in, at best, get into that trial. And so 75 people are screwed. Question. Are there like five specific things you could point to as to why those 75 people are screwed? There are at least three or four reasons that I can point out. The first reason is that the stakeholder communication between the patient, the treating oncologist, the PI, as well as a caregiver, and how the patient is going to be perceived at the site that has been referred. Does the treating oncologist is going to accept the referral? Does the PI going to accept the patient? Is the clinical research team there is ready to take the appointment? We have patients that we are sending to a site, and then they are saying that, oh, I'm not going to be able to prescreen this patient in the six weeks, six weeks, and then we are going back. No, 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 no. You're actually going to prescreen this patient in the next 24 hours. Those kind of issues. So like human error, operational, employee communication, internal business office stuff? Stakeholder communication and alignment. That's kind of uh, point number one. Point number two is that that there is the logistical issues. Because if you are looking for, a, for example, a receptionist that needs to be at the kind of the place where they need to conduct their business between nine to five, and if this kind of uh, facility that they need to go into clinical trial is only open for nine to five, this person, although they are perfect eligible for a trial, they're not going to be able to get into the trial because the hours doesn't overlap mm. in terms of when they can go to a trial versus when the clinical trial site provide them the trial. So what we have to do is that we have to look for different solution. You know, should they kind of the facility need to have an after hours? You know, there has to be engineering that needs to be done on the process in order to make sure that the patient can participate or do we, does the patient need to have an alternating days in their work schedule? All those kind of logistical issues that we need to do. And then the third thing is that the financial issues. Mm. Okay. So on the financial issues, in order for the patient to get into that clinical trial, they need to go into a pre-screening. And in order for them to go into a pre-screening, they need to have certain level of financial freedom to pay almost that bus ticket in order for them to get to that pre-screening. But unfortunately, pharma doesn't recognize the patient until the patient signs a consent form. And be, those are all the things that I'm explaining to you before the consent. Pharma Wait, so doesn't even know that. Just, all right, I'm, I'm playing dumb here. Right. Actually, I'm actually dumb here. <laughs> no. For real dumb here. Consent form is after the screening. Well, consent form is kind of before the screening. So they sign the consent form and they go into a screening. But in order for the patient to get into that location, they have to go to that location. They need to sign the consent and then they need to be So screened. the screening happens on site. Right. Oh, so it's that's the staging. That, that That is the staging. And the patient may not have the financial freedom, you know, in order to have that uh, bus ticket. And they may be the perfect patient in order to get to that trial. But pharma never knows that patient until the patient signs the consent. But the patient is not going to the route to get the consent because they don't have the financial freedom. You know, it's that like vicious cycle of yeah. going nowhere. All right. So what's four? I'm getting really angry. Keep keep going. Yeah. So the fourth one is that that site team may have a different trial that they wanted to work for the patient. You know, they may want to put the patient into a competitive trial, or like some kind of an internal politics that may have happened that would eliminate that patient to get to the actual trial that 
they have to be going in that sense. That fourth is not necessarily the, the most common, but again, there, there are a couple of outliers that you can see on that. But the first three, it's what my team, I think, working on every single day, every single hour, and the amount of engineering that we do in order to be able to figure out an operating model that's going to work. The, the interesting part is that there are not a lot of people that you can blame either. Because for example, if you look at the pharma, pharma doesn't know this process until the patient signs the consent. And you need to bring an appreciation before the consent process, prior to the clinical research process, so that you basically resolve all these, I would say, issues, make sure that the, the, the patient gets to a consent level, then the patient signs the consent level, then it, it becomes visible for pharma. All right. So is it fair to say that all the AI robot data nonsense in the world can't solve for this last mile? I think it may, but it has to be, we need to kind of be very, very cognizant that you need data, you need technology for a scale, but at the same time, there is a significant amount of services component mm. that you need to bring to the table. I Over time, maybe kind of, I will put the bots in the patient advocacy center and the bots will be talking to the patients and the sites and all that. So I, I'm really looking forward to that, that, that we get to that Mars level, but we are not even at the moon yet. We can't go to Mars at this point in time. I'm at the bicycle level at Earth right now. I guess that's a good cue to take an ad break now, and uh, maybe maybe Tesla will be the advertisement <laughs> you hear. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer, a beach bum summer, or a wake-me-up-when-the-sun-sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So channeling my rage from the first part of the show, we, we can boil down pretty much those four things into maybe two things. Right. Which is human resources and money. Money is broken down into 
the cost of getting to the place because geography and money are related. And then the human resources challenges of navigating the care coordination for the human beings at the site. Right. I'm, I'm stumped for a second because the, these statistics were the same 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Has there genuinely been no improvement in that magic 75% number or is it skewed data? Well, I don't think that there's any improvement on that 75% number. And actually, that 75% number is going in the negative direction at best. Okay. And the reason is that, as you know, that there's a lot of clinical trials that is more like biomarker based. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the biomarker base, at the end of the day, those patients need to get some level of genomic profiling, although they may not necessarily get the comprehensive genomic profiling. Yeah. When you also look at this kind of next generation sequencing, uh, uh, testing, genomic profiling, all the operational orchestration that needs to happen, it's almost we are going to nowhere as opposed to trying to make an improvement. So, if the and it's not even an if you know when the these clinical trial uh, I would say complexity is getting higher and when there is still a significant amount of underestimation and underappreciation to that last mile. In fact, my feeling is that we are not going in the positive direction. We are actually every year we are going into the negative direction. Is this because there are just more drugs on the market and that the the permutations are so much more complicated? There are more drugs in the market and there, there are more difficulty in terms of finding those patients because those are more complex protocols, okay? Mm. So if you wanted to find a patient with a particular biomarker, you are not going to be able to enroll that patient until you find that biomarker in the patient. So, and in order for you to be able to do that, you need to diagnose that particular biomarker in the patient, which requires a different testing. So just another like cog in the wheel. Right, 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 right. So yes, we wanted to go into these more sophisticated targeted treatments and and some of the things that's much more from a clinical standpoint makes more sense from a patient. But the question is that how are we going to make that operationally smoother so that the patient is not getting disadvantaged from an operational standpoint at the end while they're trying to get benefit from the clinical outcome of that newly developed drug? Okay, so let's talk about MassBio, mm-hmm. your company. Seven years old, really hit the hit the runway three years ago. Correct. How is it possible to solve for human error and human resources at a cancer center that has a trial? Yeah, so I think what we are trying to do is that we are trying to do three things. One of them is, of course, we are trying to bring different data and technology in order to have a real-time patient identification. We first need to identify where the patient is. Once we identify that patient, we connect with the patient and get a consent from the patient to collect the medical records, as well as if there's any kind of a next generation sequencing testing that the patient has. If the patient doesn't have it, then we are trying to facilitate that next generation sequencing ordering process. And they're, they're home. They're not going anywhere during this process. Well... When we are facilitating that, they are not going anywhere. And of course, you know, when they have to kind of uh, go into an next generation sequencing testing, there has to be a biopsy and all that stuff. There are certain things that we can control. There are certain things that we cannot control. However, what we are at least controlling is that they're not going into a site before they get pre-screened or anything like that. So then we collect that uh, clinical and genomic information, and then we are using our AI-based technology to pre-screen them to any trial that's actively recruiting. There is about 13,000 actively recruiting 
recruiting oncology clinical trials at clinicaltrials.gov. And then we are reducing that 13,000 to the kind of the number that is that this patient is eligible for. Is it two trial? Is it three trial? Whatever the, the number is. And then after that, we are working with the patient and the treating oncologist to kind of help on which one is going to be the potential lead contender. So like Tinder for trials. You know, I'm not a Tinder user, but I'm just kind of expecting what it will look like. I think we are a little bit more than Tinder. You know, we are also almost like uh, scheduling the kind of the date meeting and all that stuff as well. You know, we are going beyond that. It's concierge-ish, right? Uh, Yes, it's it's a concierge. And after that clinical trial has been determined, then there are three things that we do. We make sure that we set up the appointment between the patient, the site, and then we make sure that we resolve any kind of the inefficiencies between the communication between the treating on cause and a PI. We make sure that if there's anything that we need to do in the logistics part that would kind of prevent the patient to get access to the trial or we escalate the issues, you know, to the sponsor in if there's any financial things. Because believe it or not, the sponsor wants to help on the financial matters, but they have to know what the problem right. is. So you also want to make sure that there's someone at the front desk when they get there. Right. right. <laughs> Something as simple as that. Right, right. We, I, I, I always call that we have military actions sometimes. You know, the military action is that you basically send the patient to a site. Then the next phase is that is the site going to accept the patient right away? Is the site basically saying a pre-screening visit for X amount of kind of time frame or the site is going to kind of create a, a I would say, another issue that we have to. And then when those kind of issues happen, then we pay put the military action. We have all the clinical research team coming together, right? Almost a thesis to a side why they need to accept the patient and why this process needs to happen now as opposed to six weeks from now. So the elephant I would ask you about is how is that poor schmuck that needs a trial paying if they can't afford to, to get to this place? Is it underwritten? Are they sponsored? Does like Lyft come get them? Yeah. So on that part, you know, there, there is a certain amount of things that can be done. Like it, we, when we, for example, escalate uh, these kind of issues to the sponsors, sponsors have their reimbursement plans for the patients, but they have to get connected with the right, I would say, sponsored vendor of the sponsor in order for them to get access. Before that, the sponsor doesn't know who they need to go to. Is there a known average mileage between patient A and treatment center B? Yeah, we typically look at 50 mile radius. 50 miles. Yeah, 50 miles. That's not terrible. We typically look at 50 mile radius. However, however, you know, if you're looking at, for example, these kind of biomarker based trials, precision medicine oriented trials, you know, those are, especially if you're looking at like phase twos, those are typically small trials, which means that they're only in 10 centers in the United States. Right. And if you are in that 10 center in the United States, there's no way to kind of keep the 50 mile radius. Right. Because most of the country isn't that. Right. Most of the country is not that. Depending upon the complexity of the trial, in addition to that, depending upon how many sites have been opened, then you have to think through. But on average, when we go into, because we are not just working with the patient, we are also working with a lot of treating oncologists who are potential referrers of these patients to the sponsor sites. And for those instances, we always go into the 50-mile radius. Where do you see the strongest benefit to the cancer center itself to allow you to come in and help them unfinagle the spaghetti? 
I think there are a couple of uh, value propositions that we add to this cancer center. First of all, a lot of these trials, you know, like there are not like 3,000 patients waiting at the door in order to find those patients. You know, we are finding those patients across the, I would say, the globe almost and try to channel those patients to them. You know, it's almost like a free business development opportunity for them. So that's point number one. Point number two is that when we bring the, the patients to them, these are not, you know, like we believe that in the order of magnitude eligible patient, those are fully eligible patients because we do the, I would say, deep pre-screening of these patients. We do all the front end work, collect the medical records, NGS testing, so that we kind of put them into almost like a silver plate. And then the third one is that we put the kind of the human capital in order to be able to orchestrate that process for them. You know, they're not going to be kind of left alone with, you know, what am I going to do? You know, do, does this, do I have the, this information of the patient? You know, it's just all of these things has been at a concierge level provided to them. That's the maximum, I would say, that we can do. But we are, of course, a young organization. We'll be more than happy to listen and learn from what they need from us. But to me, I think that's a kind of a value added, both in terms of time, both in terms of money that they need to spend to look for these patients. It's just like, I'm thinking about this from just a functional consumer perspective, right? Right. It's such a moving target. We talk about end of one with rare disease. Every cancer center is going to be run differently. Different offices, different departments, different, I don't know, like hiring schedules and right. You never know. Oh, I was going to be here. Oh, she got fired this morning. Right. There's so many variables there. How concierge can this possibly need to be at some point? Well, I think there's a limitation of concierge. So we are basically developing these end of one stories. But our kind of, I would say, what we are trying to go through in the company is that we Every end of one story needs to be converted into a scalable story to a certain extent because right. you cannot kind of run the show just with the the end of one stories altogether mm -hmm. uh, because there's no not that level of funding. However, that you want it to look at that at the end of the day, we need to make sure that the lights are running. So on that one. We have all these end of one stories, but what we are trying to do in the background is to really automate and learn and then develop a learning system from these processes to the extent possible so that we know what is the precise decisions that we need to make if we face a particular issue. So that we basically automate that. And after that, only in the last mile of the last mile that you start to use a human component at that point right. in time. I should quantify for the listeners, concierge can be misinterpreted. Right. Right. Because there's concierge service for people that you, you pay out of pocket for someone to help you through the process. Right. This is at no cost right. to patients, your Correct. service. But you're acting as if you were like a sommelier right. in, in a wine shop. We're going to pick this for you. We're going to make sure it gets delivered to your table and you enjoy it. Right. Except right. it's cancer. Right, 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 right. You know, I think that concierge has a lot of value to the patients. And this is a kind of free service that we provide to the, to the cancer patients. But at the same time, you know, we are trying to make sure that, you know, it's not that like only the 5,000 patients that's getting that access, 50,000 patients gets that, that access. Right. Because the unfortunate nature is that almost every patient you need to go into a concierge because nothing happens by itself. Right. So that's kind of the unfortunate nature of that. Is it in pharma's interests writ large as an industry to guarantee people get to that trial? Like how is not solving for this last mile the top priority of industry? Well, actually it is incredibly in the interest of pharma, okay? But there are a couple of things. One, 
they haven't necessarily completely, I would say, compartmentalize and really kind of define with clear data what this problem is, because this is a very kind of a problem in a multidimensional. So what we are trying to, you know, we are a patient recruitment company, but we spend more time in certain areas in order to be able to decompose that last mile to pharma than actually doing the patient recruitment. You know, you'll be surprised how much time that I'm spending with my customers about how they need to kind of develop a next generation sequencing workflow. And at the end of the day, I'm a patient recruitment company. You know, I'm like, how are we how do, did we even come to this point? So so you have to really, really kind of decompose the pharma. What are the clear bottlenecks in the system? So they have to understand that. The second thing that they have to understand, it's the funnel. They may end up with like one or two patients at the end, but how many patients that we have started? Right. You sometimes need to start more than 1,000 patients in order to enroll one patient. But before us, no one has actually showed them that, you know, you start with 1,000 and then after that you prescreen and then you ended up 550 from that 550. This amount patient has been lost to go into this, this and that. And then they're like, oh my gosh, you know, all of my plans were wrong at this point in time right. because I have made the design for 50 patients to enroll one. Now you're telling me 1,000 patients to enroll one. That is grotesquely inefficient attrition. Correct. Correct. So I think, of course, there is a lot of shock in in that aspect. But but when it's being kind of clearly, I would say, shown with data, pharma is actually very quick uh, in terms of understanding on that picture when it's being data driven. And they're very quick in terms of responding to that. It's just I'm going to channel my inner Jewish cynic at this point. Now, how have they not realized this after 25 years of that 75 percent not moving or getting worse now? Don't have a kind of a very precise answer on that part. But what I can tell you is that when there is enough data and uh, that has been presented to them in the form that they can understand, I have never seen a pharma that disputed it. They are understanding it, they're embracing it, and they're trying to change uh, what they need to do on their side. They're incredibly receptive in that sense. But what they haven't basically get them is that they haven't come to, because you have the CRO that's more on the kind of the site activation and the monitoring side, and then they have the pharma. But that kind of gap was always missing there. Mm -hmm. So we pick up the ball and say that, okay, this is the missing gap. This is the data. This is how the funnel works. And this is how you're getting or not getting the patients. And then now we are trying to bring that transparency to that process so that they understand. And then they are starting to, I would say, of course, the change doesn't happen overnight, but they there is a significant amount of them that's showing the right step in the right direction in order to be able to change these patient acquisition and activation. In addition to that, you need to combine the, the importance of how the clinical trials are getting complex because you're not kind of looking for non-small cell lung cancer patient anymore. You're looking for a non-small cell lung cancer patient with CMET. Do you know what I mean? So historically, maybe the things may have worked and they weren't pressured that much in the last mile because the sites are in a position to be able to deliver to those patients because of the less stringent inclusion-exclusion criteria. When the inclusion-exclusion criteria gets very complicated, you are not going to necessarily get everything from the site no matter what you do, then you have to become innovative where to find those patients. And when the need is so pressing, there's no way that you can ignore. I can see why your father is so proud of you. Your five degrees have served you well. <laughs> Dr. Celine Kernaz is the co-founder and CEO at Massive Bio, and you just might be the smartest person I've ever had on the show. 
No, I think I'm just trying to kind of read between the lines, do the analysis. Again, you know, there's no, I think, end for learning. We are learners. You know, we are not saying that we are perfect, but we wanted to learn and then work together and really create a dent in the universe. I say, even if I die, I want it to be buried into the garden of the office so that I can still, from a spirit standpoint, I can work on this topic. Well done. Thank you for coming on the show. Way more to come. And again, just congratulations on, I mean, I hate the fight the fight, but you've been at this a long time and it's been, pay attention to Celine. Thank you so much for your time and having me in here. I really enjoyed the conversation. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Sarah Rosa Davies. It's mixed and edited by Sarah Rosa Davies and Kyle Moore. Special thanks to Brianna Seely for added support. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message anytime at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-AUDIO-66 to share your healthcare shitness with us, and we might just play them on the air on a future episode. For more information about this show and Offscript Health, visit offscript.com. That's offscript, no T, dot com.